Welcome to The Red Dove. We're a podcast all about activism. I'm Liz. And I'm Rainey. Today on our Spotlight in Activism, we're going to be talking about Kayvon Ward. Red Dove listeners, we have a pretty cool treat for you. Miss Kayvon Ward actually does a lot of spoken word, and we reached out to her personally, and we asked permission if we could play some of her spoken word on our show, to which she said yes. So full credit goes to Miss Kayvon Ward, and this is her spoken word called Phenomenal Black Woman. She is a platform provider, organizer, a glass ceiling divider. She is a winner, cold switcher, a shade thrower to a naysayer. She is magic, an authentic empress. Her strength, it is effortless. She is resilient, boundless, a phoenix perpetually rising from the ashes. She is your calm within several simultaneous storms, your reluctance to conform. She is intuitive. She is passion. She is your excuse me. I am speaking. Black phenomenal woman, she is sometimes angry and unapologetically because the scars inflicted on her by the world prove she has a right to be. Phenomenal black woman, that is me. Phenomenal black queen, that is she. My conviction, stop trying to vilify me. My strength, stop trying to criminalize me. My brilliance, stop trying to gaslight me. My voice, stop trying to silence me. And my body, stop trying to kill me. Please just let me live, leave me be, let me live phenomenally. I am a phenomenal black queen, that is me. I am a phenomenal black woman. And you, you can't pillage that from me. Ugh, goosebumps, beautiful. What a beautiful poem that was. That's like, such a powerful example of art as a form of activism. And it showcases, in my opinion, Ms. Ward's talent and how she's so multifaceted to be on the front lines demanding justice and a brilliant artist at the same time. Thank you again, Ms. Ward, for letting us play that. And thank you for writing it. So Kayvon Ward is a Black female activist here in Southern California who has done a lot of work to get justice for the descendants of some Black families who were wronged by the entire state of California. So Kayvon has done a lot of work um, and has been kind of a forefront runner in returning two parcels of oceanfront land in Manhattan Beach to the descendants of the original Black owners. And so it just went into Governor Newsom's desk, which he signed five days ago, allowing it to be given back to the owners. So Ward was one of the central figures in an ongoing movement to get justice for Willa and Charles Bruce. They were two African-Americans who owned and operated a seaside lodge for African-Americans during the early part of the 20th century when Black people had limited access to the coast. So they owned it. But then the Manhattan Beach leaders of the time used eminent domain to take their property, even though they rightfully owned it. Welcome and enter Kayvon Ward. Ward formed a group composed of moms who were advocating for anti-racism. So, you know, again, Red Dove listeners, we talk about getting your getting your pod and knowing who is in your pod and, and making a difference in small ways, but in significant ways. So Ward did that and she actually made big waves. So it was during that period where she was learning about anti-racism that she learned about the history of Bruce's beach for the first time. And she asked herself, this happened in the community that I lived in. How is this okay? And she started thinking how many other people don't know about this, right? Because so much of black history is washed away. Uh, She wondered how many other people did know about it. And turns out a lot of people did not know about it. She, Ward eventually formed the group Justice for Bruce's Beach. And, but before that, she planned a huge Juneteenth celebration at Bruce's Beach. And then she responded that she liked some policies that would deed the land back to the family. So it had to pick up a little steam. So a month later, Ward's anti-racism group 
uh, launched a petition that demanded reparations for the Bruce family. A week after that, there were about 80 people who marched from the city hall to Bruce's beach. And then her petition got the attention of the National Black Lives Matter movement, which helped really put a spotlight on the injustice that had happened here in California, where people think, oh, Southern California, you know, we're so progressive. And there's actually quite a lot of racist history here, too, that gets swept under the rug. In August of that same year, they created the city created a task force to talk about reparations and to examine the history of the beach and update the wording on the plaque that was on the Bruce's Beach Park. I remember that, wasn't it? It, it really didn't even tell the, the story of what happened. Yeah. I have to look that up, but that I remember when that happened. It's like steamrolling. It starts out as like a little group all working together, writing emails, writing letters, a march. And now it just keeps building and building. This is amazing. A, a Senate Bill 796 uh, was authored to allow the county to give the parcels of land back to Anthony Bruce, who was a great, great grandson of Willa and Charles Bruce. Wow. And so that was signed five days ago by Governor Gavin Newsom. And so the land is actually being given back. Wow. Let's see here. How much is it worth? I think it's worth a lot of money because it's in a really big part of it's in a really a Manhattan beach is a really nice beach. So the cool thing about this story is that just small grassroots activism really can take hold and you can do big things. I mean, you know, Kevon, Kevon Ward didn't even know the history two years ago and now she was able to help win this land back for a family that had been wronged for almost a hundred years. It's amazing. I, I celebrated when I heard about it a couple of days ago, I got the notification on my phone and I was like, this is amazing. So it's never too late to do the right thing. It's never too late to make up for wrongs that have been done. And, you know, it doesn't have to be something that you feel personally responsible for. Like no one's saying it's your fault, but if you can change things and make things better when you can do it. And that's exactly what Ward did. So I, I absolutely love it. That was awesome. Also, happy birthday to Fannie Lou Hammer. Yes. As we sit here tonight, October 6th is Fannie Lou Hammer's birthday. So happy birthday. Oh, and thank you for the reviews that we've been receiving. It's really nice. And we've been posting some of them on our IG page. So check it out. But back to Ida. So last time with Ida, um Willard was like basically like what what do they call it now like cyberbullying but like <laughs> writing letters and stuff trashing Ida and that was just sorry <coughs> and that was just around um 1894 but Ida kind of took a different road she didn't really she kind of like just blocked out Willard because she was still lecturing and completing a new pamphlet and the title of the pamphlet big reveal long I, I keep telling you they, these names and these titles and the acronyms were so long this is the pamphlet a red record tabulated statistics and alleged case of lynching in the United States 1892 1893 1894 1895 so <laughs> being concise wasn't really a thing. Nope. <laughs> like how many ways can we say this <laughs> but seriously the pamphlet was the facts and the figures that Ida had been gathering all these years as she traveled throughout the country you know investigating these murders so she was like the original murderino but and this was huge because and this is probably what people if they even know the name Ida B. Wells this is like one of the biggest like facts about her. The whole pamphlet was Ida's scientific proof of lynchings for the world to read. And her data showed that in many cases, this is Ida, quote, 
The facts were plain that the relationship between the victim lynched and the alleged victim of his assault was voluntary, clandestine, and illicit, end quote. So she was using sociology methodology of her day. The whole framework was addressing social problems by analyzing or using facts and data. And so with this, Wells once said, this is one of her most famous quotes, virtue knows no color line and the chivalry which depends upon the complexion of skin and texture of hair can command no honest respect. Oh, mic drop. Golly. I mean, they are not concise, but boy, do they know how to drop some knowledge. (laughs) Yeah. And then she closes out the pamphlet with a call to activism. Quote, disseminate the facts contained in this book. And she called on all her readers to mobilize their churches and civic associations to denounce lynching, challenging the idea of a white man's government. And she asked them to support Senator Blair's anti-lynching resolution, which was way ahead of her time. Again, like we're still seeing it today, like this is still practices that are used in activism. Like we just covered Devon Ward, but like these calls for action at this time period and her her theory of lynchings, it would be the 1930s before people started catching up to this idea. Wow. But despite it being like super clear now to us, um, Ida would spend probably most of her life never getting the majority of white women to understand this. She was friends with Susan B. Anthony. Really? I know this is an episode of the name drops. Like we're just one after the other. So gear up. Goodness. All right. Yeah. She's like besties. They're having tea together. They, they were really good friends, but even still she could never convince Anthony um, to reject Willard's leadership of the WCTU or even challenge women's suffrage associations in the South being segregated. So, like, again, like, everybody's, like, knows. I think Susan B. Anthony's on a freaking coin. Like, Harriet Tubman is, and Ida B. Wells is, but Susan B. Anthony is, right? She was racist as fuck. Yeah, she does not sound like a good friend. Right. And it's, like, this total, because it's, like, this deep-seated belief that this is, like, you you mentioned earlier Darwinism. Like, there was, they had this deep-seated misinformed belief that it somehow was involved with science and all this layers of bullshit saying that like we're better because we're white you can't you're not capable of things because you're black i mean so slow down when you praise the suffragist movement um because this is who it's filled with those who would put their white womanhood ahead of womanhood anthony told Ida that she was willing to support Frances Willard because she just believed that once we got the right to vote, then all of society's wrongs would be righted. This is what Ida told Anthony, quote, knowing women as I do and their petty outlook on life, I do not believe that the exercise of the vote is going to change women's nature or the political situation. Oof. She called that so well. Like, right. <laughs> clap back. Like, women are petty as fuck. That's not going to help. Yeah. I like this was way, like I said, way ahead of her time. June 27th, 1895, Ida and Ferdinand get married. Oh, she finally tied. She finally tied. Right. She finally like spared a second from her like <laughs> traveling to get married. Literally, that's almost how. She writes about it. In fact, there's a club. It's called the Ida B. Wells Club. They ended up coordinating the entire wedding for her because she was too busy. <laughs> so I can't be bothered with this bullshit. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was a huge party. 500 guests and even sisters Annie and Lily attended. Right. I don't know if Aunt Fanny, I, I don't know if Aunt Fanny was around. Fun fact, Ida gave herself away at her wedding. Oh, my God. 
can she, she will, get better? Can she get any better? <laughs> I don't think she can. It's just like, God, I, I need Ida B. Wells vibes in every aspect of my life. I love it. Typical Ida fashion. Her dress was very fashionable and gorgeous. And it was described with satin trimmed with chiffon and orange blossoms. Ooh. Ida's marriage is certainly not traditional marriage for that time period. Both um, at this point, again, this is like the height of Ida, but also like things are changing. But right now they were both considered high powered individuals and both stated that they were looking for a partner to support them in their careers. For Ida, she supported Ferdinand right off the bat, like right after they got married by taking over his editing on this newspaper, which freed him up to run uh, for an assistant state attorney position in Illinois. And he ends up winning it in 1896. He becomes the first African-American assistant state's attorney in Illinois. Wow. I mean, they are some, what a power couple. Yes. This will forever, like, like you're okay in my book, in my book, Ferdinand, because he also, for the flip side, supporting her, he said he never saw Ida as a homemaker expected to stay in the house clean and cook. That's also because it's like valuing, like that is a valuable service that you put out for your family, right? But he I wonder like like I'm so glad he got there and he got it he also like the privilege of having his two parents move into his house after his wife died because they in their 80s were cleaning his house cooking and taking care of his two sons wow okay so Ida never stops traveling she keeps traveling the country collecting data on lynchings and giving lectures regarding her anti-lynching campaign. And we've already said this, Ida's theory on the why and how of lynchings occurred pissed a lot of white people off. Fun fact, hilarious story. This is what you get. Karma's a bitch. (laughs) J.W. Jacks. He was the president of some press, Missouri Press Association. And he wrote this super rude, snarky ass letter to one of the Brit- the one of the British anti-lynching committee's members, Florence Balgarini. And uh, he was basically trashing all African American women. Um yeah, saying that it's doubtful that they were that they're virtuous women. Um they, you know, homeboy sounds jealous. Blah blah blah. Yeah, exactly. Who hurt you? Right. But- <laughs> And so, like, he kind of did it as, like, a ploy, like, trying to upset her and then thinking that she was going to publish it. But what Florence does instead, she forwards it to Josephine St. Pierre Ruffin, who is a Black women's club leader and editor of the world, of the woman's era. Josephine, in turn, makes a shit ton of copies and sends them out to all of her subscribers and asked for their responses. Oh, <laughs> oh my, oh my, God. this is so much better than what we do on Facebook right now. <laughs> well, yeah, it's kind of like that shit went viral, right? All of them read it, pissed as fuck, and wrote all of these letters, including Booker T. Washington's wife, Ooh. Margaret Margaret Murray Washington. And this is like why Ida's such a leader because. Josephine gets so pissed, she ends up starting a new group called the National Conference of Colored Women of America, and it met in Boston in August 1895. The conference had a lot of militancy among middle-class clubs who responded to Josephine's call to action. Quote, there was a time when our mothers and sisters could not protect themselves from such beasts. But a new era has begun and we propose to defend ourselves. That's like the twisted tea of today. <laughs> like, no, you're not going to disrespect me. Right. And Josephine says to the group that they could no longer continue, quote, to be reduced to 
mortified silence by charges of a delicate and humiliating nature. I love it. And then, so according to so the conference uh, formed a permanent organization, quote, pledged to correct the image of black women. Love it. Wow. Ugh. Like Ida, the role, like it just, you start something and the chain reaction and then the inspiration and like more pods for me. It's awesome. And this led to a lot of other women's groups popping up as a result, which is great, but it's not just, you just, it's not just blanketed. Like it's still individuals and things are different among people. In fact, even uh, Mary Murray Washington starts a group. So, but still it's happening. People are talking about it. People are organizing. One of them called the National League of Colored Women, who was, leadership was Mary Church Terrell. She was a prominent Washington, D.C. club woman and the daughter of a wealthy Black businessman, Robert Church, who, fun fact, he funded one of Wells's trips when she left Aunt Fanny and went back to Memphis. He's, the re- he's one of the reasons that she got back to Memphis. Just throwback. Really? Yes. So Mary Church Terrell, she forms the National Association of Colored Women, NACW. This is so incredible. So one night they have this super awesome party and Wells, she's in the club. She's loving it. They have this super awesome party. Harriet Tubman is one of the guests. Oh my God. What? So Ida B. Wells and Harriet Tubman were at a party together in 1896. First off, it starts off like an, a weird joke. So <laughs> Wells and Harriet Tubman were at a party. <laughs> Fun fact, Ms. Janine Cook, the owner of Harriet's bookshop, was the one that told me that when I was buying this book, uh, To Tell the Truth Freely by Maya Bay, at Harriet's bookshop. And this book is one is the major source material for all of our Ida episodes. But yeah, I never knew that before. Me neither. Okay. Something else is happening in 1896. It's not just all parties with Harriet Tubman. (laughs) Ida gives birth to her first child. Okay. Yes. He's born exactly nine months after their wedding. Oh, they got started. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Ida names him Charles Aked Barnett. Super fans will remember Charles Aked was Ida's, um, one of her British supporters when she went on her second tour when Mayo screwed her over and pulled all the funding. Charles Aked and his wife stepped in to help Ida. So isn't that cute? That's the name of the, her first son. I love it. That's adorable. Just paying homage to important people. I love that. So Charles would end up being Ida's eldest out of eight children. Oh, wow. Oh, yes. And her first daughter, I don't know, kind of jumping ahead, but it's too good. First daughter's name is Ida. Oh, man. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? She made her own junior. Oh, my. I don't think I could love this woman more. I know. It's like you think you can, and then you learn one more thing. And you're like, oh, my God. Right. And by all accounts, Ida really loved uh, being a mom, and she enjoyed being with her family. However, she did not stop traveling and researching and lecturing. In fact, Frederick uh, hired a nurse to accompany Ida so Ida could travel uh, two months after giving birth to Charles. She went back on the road to lecture. Wow. I mean, the dedication. I mean, a lot of women struggle with that today mm-hmm. to get out of that, you know, and to do stuff like that. So go Frederick. And so like Ida once says, like she began to see her motherhood as both a womanly vocation and a profession, which I like the way that she frames it as a profession because I think it also gives it more respect for what it is. 
So like around 1897, she ends up giving up her editorship at a newspaper. And she says like, you know, a quote, abandoned all of her public work to dedicate herself to raising her children. But in Ida's framework of motherhood, it still included activism. Even as a mom, that's amazing. Yeah. And she was still like, she was still, she was starting to be like more grassroots local with her activism. In fact, and I love it. She uh, led a successful battle to establish Black Chicago's first kindergarten. That was pretty controversial. And this is like where Ida, this is the beginning of the end of the 1800s. Ida really ruffled some feathers with this because like a lot of the quote unquote black well-to-do prominent, whatever you want to call it, did not want a separate black kindergarten. There was also like this whole like classism thing going on with them because they could afford to put their children, provide them that education. Right. So and they didn't like that. It just kind of keeps rolling because remember, like I talked about all the black women activist clubs that were sprouting up. Well, eventually the women of those clubs started pushing Ida out of not just like leadership positions, but even speaking roles. There was a lot of rich women that were partnered some way financially with Booker T. Washington and believed in what he was saying. They just said they had a different point of view than how Ida saw things. And they, you know, didn't want her to speak. They described Ida's politics, quote, radical viewpoints and behavior. Um, So again, it kind of sounds like respectability politics, class, like caste systems. I could see why she'd be like, oh, fuck that. But like, she's so far ahead of the time period. Like I, I understand, I don't agree with it, but I understand why Booker T. Washington kind of was in that road he was in, right? Like, hey, let's just get them to, you know, not see us as a threat at this point, right? And, you know, be very mild-mannered with, you know, his Blackness. And Ida's like, nah, dude, fuck all of that. Like, they're going to accept all of us for who we all are. Like, I'm not interested in taking any sort of baby steps. Again, sliding doors. Like, if when Frederick Douglass died, if it had been Ida and not him, how different things might be. So with that kind of slight, Ida was like, no problem. I'm out. She starts to shift away from the black women's clubs and focusing more in it's more male dominated, but they're the national organizations because her bottom line is she's trying to agitate against lynching. She wrote in her diary, just, you know, the vibe of the, the women's clubs were more com- like stifling I mean, how often do we see that though, right? Like that is sometimes I think a problem with women is, you know, cattiness and like, hey, no, you're not going to break away from what we're doing. We're all going to think together and do these things together. And, you know, a woman who decides not to is is ostracized for that. I don't like that. That just gives me a yucky feeling. All right. I'm sorry. We're going to feel yucky for a while. Oh God. Okay. (laughs) Because we're entering the 1900s. All right, let's do this. Okay, it's about to get yucky. One of these national organizations that Ida joins is called the Afro-American League. Ida works there with Booker T. Washington. Because remember, he's everywhere. Right. He And again, it's like you're going to work with people for a greater good, a cause or whatever. I don't even know why he's there because he doesn't even want the same things as her. But I don't know. Enter new character. Da, 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 W.E. Du Bois. What the hell? I told you. This is what? keep happening this episode. Oh, it's crazy. My God, I the love cameos that. in this episode is unreal. Oh my God. It just is just every heavy hitter there is. <laughs> That's why her story is so cool because, yeah, it's like it's explaining so many of our ideas that we've had because we know these stories so clearly and you're taking Ida's life you're taking it from going from an enslaved person to the emancipation at all the way up to now we're hitting the 1900s so you're, you're seeing so much change and you're seeing it through the point of view of one of the baddest bitches of American history right 
So yeah, so they're all working it together. Ida's got her thing going on. She's got her own little anti-lynching bureau. Um, served on the council's national organizing position, and she used all this to protest lynching and, and organizations against the disenfranchisement schemes used by white Southerners. So boy, he comes up with this great idea for the council. He says, what if we established a National Negro Business Bureau? Great idea, right? Washington thought so too. So he stole Du Bois' idea and created his own separate National Negro Business League. What is going on with Washington? And he's there because he's like consolidated all this money, all this access. And I mean, I have no opinion on this. There was a great amount of Black Americans that supported him and did see him as a leader. So Ida being Ida writes an article about Washington on how he was he stole the boy's idea. And this is what she said. That Washington was unwilling to support any movement that he did not inaugurate. Again, as like power control. And she said, that he had stolen Du Bois' idea and established his own organization where he'll be the president, moderator, and dictator. Ooh, <laughs> snap. <laughs> and then Booker T. Washington responds and he says, Miss Wells is fast making herself so ridiculous that everyone is getting tired of her. <laughs> okay. Okay, yeah, exactly. Wow. wow. Sweet it's- burn, dude. <laughs> but Du Bois never you know, calls Washington out for stealing his idea either. And he's like, right now, he is a professor at a quote unquote, like formal school, like a college. And he said that he was keeping quiet because he was not dependent on Washington's money. But again, Washington had quite amount of influence at this time period. So that didn't do Ida any favors and Washington starts to move to squash Ida's anti-lynching bureau within the council. How fucking petty. Oh God. I, the more I hear about him, the less I like him. He kind of like just squashes her thing. Like he just got, he gets rid of anybody that isn't supporting him and so by the end of this, he basically kills it because he basically just takes it over and then a bunch of people leave and it's dead, pretty much. However, Ida and Frederick, 1896, they help campaign for William McKinley's presidential campaign and McKinley is elected president. And they endorsed him because of his anti-lynching campaign speeches, which is like great news. Yay. Like, Wow. Now, people now a white man running for president is making a speech about anti-lynching. Thank you, Ida. However, it seems to be a lot of words and not action because see, McKinley started out all right in Ida's eyes. He even elected a black man named Frazier B. Baker to be the postmaster of Lake City, South Carolina. Shortly thereafter, unfortunately, Baker was murdered by a mob. But McKinley refused to issue a public statement condemning the murder of Mr. Baker. Wow. Ida also gets really mad at McKinley and she gets an in-person meeting with McKinley to discuss the matter. Wow. Right. I told this is the cameo episode. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And basically during her one-on-one meeting, she's linking the Spanish American war with lynching. And she's basically telling McKinley, you don't need to go outside of your own country to fix injustices when you have injustices right here at home that you're not addressing. Right. So McKinley doesn't really change his tune and he does more shit that pisses off Ida. So eventually Ida goes on to write the very powerful, most quoted speech on mob violence and P.S. criticized McKinley and Booker T. Washington all in one speech. (laughs) (laughs) They were hitting the crescendo. No fucks given, and I'm so here for it. (laughs) I was inspired to write this after the Wilmington Massacre, and she was horrified about what happened, and she decided to use her gift to do something about it. 
this is what Ida said about McKinley in the speech, that McKinley was much too interested in the decoration of Confederate graves to pay any attention to Negro rights. Wow. Boom. Wow. <laughs> she does not mince words. Yes, we're not holding back. And this is what Ida said about Booker T. Washington. Oh my God, I'm just, I could just imagine being in this time, like just waiting for the newspaper to be like, wait, oh, what is he going to say? These like <laughs> clapbacks are the most intense thing. I, the gift and whatever you're good at, use it for good. Use it to do social change and activism like Ida. This is what she writes. She said that Booker T. Washington made the misquote, made the, mis- the great mistake of imagining that the Black people could gain their rights merely by making themselves factors in industrial life. And that, right, yeah, you're nodding your head. Yeah, this is... And she started there, right? She had high hopes that we could just teach you how to quote-unquote behave and act a certain way. Everything would work out for us. But, like, she outgrew it. He never got there. Right. And she's like, enough's enough because Booker T. Washington doesn't even mention the Wilmington massacre. Not once. Wow. This is it. Like she's worked with him forever. Now he's starting to be a dick and like pushing her out of shit. And it's like, you know what, buddy? Your entire log- uh, argument is flawed. Mm-hmm. Also, she called him out being saying like, you're not talking about this. Because the Wilmington community obliterates your entire theory. This is what Maya Bay writes about it. She says that the home was, uh, that Wilmington was home to a hardworking black middle, ca- black middle class whose economic achievements had not earned them the white respect that Booker T. Washington claimed would come with wealth. On the contrary, Ida's theory is exactly what played out. The black middle class community was doing very well economically. And as Ida has said before, when the black economics rise, the white violence rises with it. Right. Ida is shining a light on the hypocrisy of Booker T's theory. And that's like the final nail in the uh, coffin for the Afro-American council group. Worth it. (laughs) But even though the council dissolved the activists are still working in the same spheres. And Du Bois, as we mentioned before, like he kept quiet when Washington stole his idea and this and that. And so like, just always keep that in mind. Like he's not Ida. He's now known as one of the most famous critics of Booker T. Washington, asterisk, even though we all know it's Ida. He gets his notoriety because in 1903, he publishes a very famous work called the Souls of Black Folk. I, I do love that book. I really do. It, it's, yes. it's so poignant. And I think that is the book where he first ta- termed the coin uh, double consciousness. The idea that when you are Black in America, you have to be doubly aware of who you are, right? So something that white people don't Uh, don't think about and it's a privilege is they don't have to think about how their race will affect them they can go about their day and just live their lives and not think of how they're being perceived as white people or how people will think that they are doing things because they are black because they are white they can just be who they are without that they don't have to think about their race conversely blacks think about our race every day Black people think about our race every single day. We are always worried about it. We're always wondering if every exchange that we're having has to deal with our race. We have to think about how we move within this world, you know? So there's a funny comedian and he, and he had it perfectly. Uh, He went to Best Buy and he bought a, he bought a phone or some sort of electronics. And the guy was like, here, just take your receipt. Or do you want me to just, you know, email your receipt or something. And, you know, here, I don't have a bag. And the guy's like, no, you better give me a bag and you better give me a receipt. I'm not walking out of this store with a phone in hand without being able to prove right here, right now that I 
took this thing. He was like, you guys aren't going to have me tackled by security or anything like that. Right. So his immediate thought was, I can't walk out of this place holding this item without proof, because I already know that people will assume I stole it because I'm black. And, and that's what uh, W.E.B. Du Bois talks about is that African-Americans in America have to think about their race all the time. So they're conscious of who they are as people, but they're also conscious of who they are as black people. And he talks about that a lot in the soul of black folks. He's an amazing writer. Ida and Frederick promote the fuck out of the souls of black folk. They also loved it. They even attended an anti-racial book club. No, that's a good (laughs) It's um, a multi-racial book club. So it was black and white people to discuss the souls of black folk in the home of Celia Parker Woolley. Uh, she was a Unitarian minister who was active in the Chicago Women's Club. Oh, fun fact, there were other progressive white women in Chicago uh, that helped Ida promote the book, such as Jane Adams, the founder of Whole House. Both Adams and Woolley also supported Ida having the, the first Black kindergarten in Chicago as well. So they were like her little tribe of volunteers at this point. But even them, like they're sitting in this book club and they just couldn't understand what Du Bois was saying about uh, Booker T. Washington. Because again, so it's like limits, right? They, they thought Booker T. was the best. Right. And this is like what we're talking about, right? Like Du Bois didn't want to say anything about Booker T. Washington. And then like Ida's doing it and, and Du Bois doing it and more and more people are doing it. And this is what we always talk about is like, say something if you think it's right. Because the chances are there's like 50 other people in the room that are thinking the same thing. So there's finally starting to be like a kind of like an erosion of like Booker T. Washington's popularity and more and more people are speaking out against it. And it's not just Ida and Du Bois. There's a, another man named William Monroe Trotter. And he had been, criti- he had been criticizing Booker T. Washington since 1890. But like, finally, like, Again, because it's like this is hard work and it doesn't happen in a day. But finally, 1903, Booker G. Washington is at this meeting in Boston and Trotter shows up because he knows that Booker T is going to be there giving a public speech. And Trotter had the intention of being there so that he could ask Booker T a question. Well, Booker T. Washington supporters saw Trotter in the crowd and uh, they started a fight. A fight broke out um, and then it escalated and escalated. It was called the Boston Riot. Not that one, this one. But Maya Bay wrote that the Boston Riot helped galvanize Black resistance to Washington outside of Boston. That's 1903. So that's like good things are happening. People are starting to more, more and more difference of opinion, which is always good. And because of the Boston Riot and all the stuff that W.E. Du Bois, um, all the stuff that Ida's doing, Du Bois finally steps out behind his academic tower and starts doing some real activism work. And he writes about that, how it was like, you know, the change in him from like what he could do and the limitations in the academia. So he frees himself in a way. Dun, 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 dun. 1904, the best collaboration ever. Ida, W.E. Du Bois team up to give a speech that they would call the quote, the Negro problem from the Negro point of view at a symposium that they knew Booker T. Washington would be attending. Oh, yes. Nice. Oh, so how much time do you have left? I have about 10 minutes. Okay. I'm so sorry. That's okay. So following this speech, Du Bois, he um, he leaves the Afro-American Council and creates males only radicals, organizes them. They begin meeting in secret, calling themselves anti-Bookerites. And in 1905, they met at Niagara Falls, New York, 
And it was there that they formed the Niagara Movement, whose mission was, quote, dedicated to securing full citizenship rights for Black people, end quote. Also in 1905, Chicago opens, quote, the Frederick Douglass Center. And this was, I know, this was a mission very close to Ida's heart. And it was designed to be a place where, quote, white and colored could meet and get to know each other better, end quote. It offered Chicago Southside residents a variety of lectures and classes, as well as services such as kindergarten, summer day camp, and an athletic club. Also served as meeting place for Black women's clubs and other community organizations. I love it. I know. Uh, And Celia Woolley from before, Ida's friend, she was now running the center and Ida and Frederick volunteered and they taught classes there and everything's amazing until they quit because Woolley is the worst. She kept expressing uh, opinions like buying in, like this is why white people loved what Booker T. Washington was saying so much because like she really thought like, that she was she was superior and Ida was incapable. And she said one time to Ida that only whites were capable of running the center. Oh boy. The Frederick Douglass Center. You're saying that to Ida B. Wells? Come oh, on. Ida B. Wells, like, don't let the door hit you where the Lord <laughs> roll up her sleeve. She's like, okay. Right. She's like, oh, you have me all kinds of fucked up. <laughs> oh. It's going to die any minute. Okay. I'm so sorry. No, that's fine. So fun fact, we are back fully charged. <laughs> you know what just gets me like, and it's something that I think sometimes a lot of progressive liberals do, especially, you know, white, well, mostly white progressive liberals is the support of black lives and black mo- movements and black excellence up until a point then it drops off. Then there's reasons why not to support. Oh, I would support if only blah, 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 or I can do it, but then I don't like this. Right. And it's not unconditional support. If you have conditions on when you are going to support people of color, then you are not an ally. You know, if you have to put caveats to make you feel more comfortable, well, I'll support, but you know, look at this, when you start doing your, what about isms and stuff like that, you're not supportive. You're not an ally. And so Wooly was not an ally at all. And I think that sometimes we don't talk enough about, about that because it's really, it's really detrimental to be there and support and then to pull your support away, like a petulant child pulling their toy away and running home because the game isn't going their way. That's exactly what you look like. Think either support us or get out of the way. Ida even like what 200 years ago this is what she wrote in her autobiography and it's like message just what you were saying this is Ida Mrs. Wooley never failed to give me this impression that she did not propose to give me much leeway in the affairs of the center I felt at first that she had been influenced by other colored women who strange to say seemed so unwilling that one of their own race should occupy a position of influence. And although I was loath to accept it, I came to the conclusion before our relations ended that our white women friends were not willing to treat us on a plane of equality with themselves. The same thing, except way more eloquent. <laughs> yeah, but both very powerful. And it's very, it's very painful to see white women not not much has changed like a hundred, 200 years apart from when Ida wrote that to Rainey saying that today, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but no worries. Ida keeps going in February 12th, 1909, Ida and 68 other quote unquote prominent reformers signed a national quote call to action. And fun fact, Ida was one of three black speakers at the National Negro Conference meeting held in New York that following spring to establish a new organization called, drumroll please, the NAACP. Ah, I was wondering when this was coming. (laughs) (laughs) We're here. 
1909. So like Ida's kind of like, she's really getting frustrated with these women's groups. And this is like another example of Ida going on the national stage because there she wrote, it was really funny. She wrote in her autobiography how she could navigate and get her goals, like achieve her goals in this in a masculine setting as how she describes the national organizations that she was a part of better than these local women's groups or even national women's groups and she attributed it to like her time as when she was a reporter in memphis how she was like like the one woman in a largely male dominated field i just i've always found that like fascinating how she's critiquing the experiences and she'd rather be in a masculine but it's it's terrible that one must make the choice as to how you wish to be disrespected. Yeah. You know, like, do you want to be disrespected in a in a mass in a majority male organization or a majority, you know, women of color or women in general organization? You shouldn't I, have to make that choice. <laughs> you shouldn't. But I would definitely choose the more masculine one, too. As powerful as women are, women have the tendency of using that power for great evil. And it is so sly and undercover and covert working in that masculine world. At least it's pretty like upfront. You're just like, okay, there's the wall I have to deal with rather than hear all these secret booby traps and you think you're okay. And then suddenly you're not okay when you <laughs> mm-hmm. deal with women, yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> for the women's groups. <laughs> yeah. Right. But I'm dumb. <laughs> yeah. I would be like, at least my speeches or what I wanted to do would go somewhere in the predominantly male-run national organizations. Horrible fun fact, the NAACP was founded by majority white people. Two activists came up with the idea for the NAACP and they were the ones that actually wrote that call that Ida signed in February, 1909. William English Walling, he was a white socialist from Kentucky and fun fact, Wallings, he was a journalist and an activist just like Ida. And he married a Russian activist named Anna Strunsky. So Google her. She's, that's a cool story. But anyway, okay, the other one is a woman by the name of Mary White Ovington, who was a white woman activist journalist who lived in Manhattan. And if you want to research her, like super saviorism vibes. Just going to leave it there. That's my opinion. But Walling Ovington and another activist by the name of Henry Moskowitz envisioned a biracial organization dedicated to bringing both whites and blacks together to fight for the full rights of black Americans. And then hence down the road, the NAACP. Which I can like, I can get on board with if the second half of that is, you know, the first half is making doors or, you know, making opportunities where people of color could not make opportunities for themselves in those time periods. Like I'm super on board with seeing where your privilege intersects with someone's lack of privilege. But then I guess the next part of it is, but then do you let them run with it afterwards? Do you hold open the door and let them walk through or do you gatekeep the door? On the one hand, I like that this is a recognition that white supremacy is something that white Americans should be fighting as well for the full rights of black Americans. It's what happens afterwards, which is why I think, in my opinion, in New Jersey, did you hear Ray bark? That's my dog, Ray. Sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) Like here in New Jersey, Black Lives Matter only extends membership to black Americans. And we have something called surge S-U-R-J, much shorter acronyms, have you noticed? But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) the Surge is an organization that works, um, it's for for white members that want to fight for the full rights of Black Americans. And in New Jersey, I think that Surge takes their leadership from BLM New Jersey when it comes to fill in the blank, like a protest you know, it's sort of like BLM comes up with something and then Surge kind of is like the worker bees and they volunteer to, to work for it. So it's that, but it's, when you listen to the story about what happens with the NAACP and Ida, 
I hope that you gain a better understanding of a perspective as to why some Black Americans feel that it's important to not have either a majority of white people as leaders or um, white people having a voice on fighting for the full rights of Black Americans. Because like this is our history. Ida's story isn't taught in public schools. And I wish it was because if you go cover to cover with her whole life, you, you're starting out as a two-year-old enslaved to, uh, I forget when she dies, like 30s or 40s, no, 30s, 1930s. So a lot is covered as we all know now. What are we on episode like uh, part 106? Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> like, you know, but it's important and it just, it covers so many, it intersects with so many other topics that we that we discuss here on the show. So anyway, inaugural meeting of the NAACP, international gathering, 300 people attended, and they consisted of white reformers uh, and the Niagara Movement activists. Niagara Movement was what W.E. Du Bois started, of course, no women. So that's that. And then like other people not affiliate, not white or affiliated with the Niagara Movement, like our girl Ida. Walling and Ovington are much younger than Ida, and they were actually influenced by Ida's earlier work as like it was sort of the the forming or the molding of who they are today. So it's like kind of cool. Like we're at the point in Ida's life where it's like she's the OG of the movement. Right. You know what I mean? Like she's the withered general that's been that's done some shit. Have you gone to Britain twice and get your shit canceled? <laughs> I didn't think so. You know what I mean? Like, that's where we are now with Ida's life. That's that's the rosy side of it. Right. The not so rosy side of it is at the meeting, Ida was shocked. She didn't get nominated to be any type of leader on the, yeah, for the, I see your eyebrows raised. Yes. Nothing. No leadership position for Ida, the OG in the NAACP. So Ida left the meeting feeling angry and she initially went for Du Bois towards her anger because mm-hmm. what from Ida's point of view, and we're going to break this down to everybody's point of view so that the listeners and us, we know what factually happened. Yeah. So this is important. So Ida's POV, she writes, she felt Du Bois was the reason that like he like cock blocked her because he took Ida's name off the list and replaced it with a man from Du Bois' Niagara movement. Mm. That's one. Second, Ovington, she was doing some dirty shit behind Ida's back I didn't even know about. And she basically was like, there's absolutely no way Ida can be a leader. She's too radical. She's too out of control. I don't like the way she speaks. On and on and on and on and on. So that's going on. The audacity is just mind-numbing it really is just who are you to talk about being too radical when it's not your life and your race that's being talked about Ovington when I read this it was like she's embodying respectability politics and the disrespect Mm -hmm. to the old to the OG in the room like none of you would even be here if it wasn't for what she did, so how can you disrespect her and not trust her or or let her lead you? She brought you here. Right. And then enter the ultimate villain. Well, not the ultimate villain, but like the villain for this section, Mr. Villard. That's Should have been villain name. I know, right? <laughs> I was like, and then he fights Batman. <laughs> I picture him as like the penguin. I was picturing him as like some type of bird type too, like like a <laughs> like a buzzard or something. Yes, like hey, yeah, like right. the, the, the mustache and like <laughs> the cigarette and the top hat, like right. like, like the Monopoly Man, like cross right. between Monopoly Man and uh, the Penguin. But he has to have a hook nose. Yeah. Oh yeah. Totally. totally. Super hook nose and a <laughs> monocle and like a really annoying screechy laugh. Like, <laughs> like yes. So That's now it. that I know what this guy looks like. <laughs> Well, he's one of the founders of the NAACP. Oh, well, shit. Boom. <laughs> shit. Right. Yes. Um, him and his mom. He was a racist white man. His, I remember reading his wife quoted that he would never have a, a Black or a Jew come over to their house for dinner. 
that's who's that's who's a part of, part of the founding members of the NAACP. And and wait, he's for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, right? Like this is the same NAACP that I know, right? Like, are you at the right meeting, sir? And right, like, I, I feel like yours might be meeting on Tuesdays. <laughs> he was uh, he was a fan of Booker T. Washington. Mm. So he was like of that persuasion that that's how uh, Black Americans would achieve equality. Everything would work out if they just worked hard. So that's his bullshit. That, in my opinion, that's his point of view. And he was running this, the NAACP. He wrote one time that like, well, obviously only a few select white males should be leaders. He, He envisioned like, six white dudes and he was hope and and then so he cock blocks ida uh hoping that in the future booker t washington would endorse the group and he believed if ida had a leadership position booker wouldn't endorse the group i'm super grossed out right now we had that rosy moment for a second for a second and good lord did it go dark fast that's the flip side of like that's like the og is like you bitches, I made you. And then they look up to her. And then this is the fucking flip side of it. And then they put everybody in power that is antithetical to everything she stands for, everything that this movement should be. Putting these white people in power who look down. They're not looking for advancement of people of color. That's not what they're after. It it almost sounds like they're looking to get them to shut up. They had a strong belief based on what they wrote that Black Americans, their idea of what equality looked like for them was one thing, but what they believed from a scientific, they wrote it was science, but we know it as Darwinism, that literally Black people weren't capable, that was the word that they used, capable of being leaders. Is a real deep seed. That's, that's who they call the white progressives, mind you. Mind you, that's the white progressive for 1909. Those are the people who are going to help. Yeah, that's like, and this is the beginning of the 1900s. This is going to be the majority thought of those who hold quote unquote power. Like, again, like when you were talking earlier about, you know, Ida being radical, right? Like, so to make it clear, Red Dev listeners, when when they're calling her radical, She's like, yeah, no, I don't really, I'm not interested in all of these additional steps to get to equality. I'm not interested in being subjugated or being subservient to white people in any manner, you know, like you can put a smile on it and try to make it look like it's nicer, but it is, it is not equality, no matter what you call it. And I'm calling for full equality. I mean, going up with Susan B. Anthony and like, you know, well, women want rights, but not black women. I mean, again, it's like, you know, we want the advancement for you, but only in small little doses that we deem appropriate for you. We will tell you how much freedom you can have, how much equality you can have. And, and we see that literally today when you have people who are, again, saying, well, you know, I support all lives or, you know, Black Lives Matter, but here are my caveats on it. If you don't support it all the way, then fuck off. You're not an ally. Again, like it's just so irritating. It's it's enraging. It's enraging that these people cannot see or don't want the same thing for others as they do for themselves. You can definitely, you know, it's not right for you. You know, you wouldn't want it for you. You know, you wouldn't want to be treated like a black person in this country today, but you won't do anything to fix it. You're comfortable in the status quo, especially white women. There's a comfortability of being there. At least, at least you're not at that level, right? So you will fight and fight to keep that status quo when it harms everybody. I like what you said about radical. Keep in mind, they are calling her radical for believing that Black Americans are capable of being leaders. That's radical? Call me radical then. So like, understand, don't be scared of words. They're saying that it's radical that Black Americans could be leaders of their own movement. That's where we are. But Walling, the white socialist from Kentucky, 
he kind of pushed back on Villard. He doesn't say it as eloquently as you just said, Rainey, but along those lines. And he pushed for and won. And this is so pathetic. There would have to be one Black person on the board. So he nominates Du Bois. And by that nomination, this is where Du Bois' career takes off and um, the link between him being a leader of the NAACP. He was their editor. He was their director. Ida writes, this also began her distrust of biracial organizations. Mm. And that's why I brought up BLM Jersey before. So like, that's our history. That's her, that's Ida's point of view. And you can't blame her for that. You can't. I mean, look at every time she's tried to link up with white people to advance and to make things better for her people. And it has always ended in flames. It has always gotten their egos get involved, their their pride gets involved. And the real issue is not at hand, which Ida has always been the true north on those issues. She's always been like, I'm not trying to take any fucking detours with this. I am trying to save lives. I'm trying to stop lynching. I'm trying to make sure we can fucking vote. And you guys want to do this petty bullshit back and forth. I get it. I understand why she would be like, yeah, it doesn't work. It can't work like this, you know, because it always ends poorly for her. I mean, this would be absolutely just, again, I use the word enraged. I mean, I would be enraged if I were her. Maya Bay, who wrote To Tell the Truth Freely, which is the major source material for all of these Ida's episodes. And we got our book at harrietsbookshop.com. Well, actually, we got it at the store Harriet's, which is in the Fishtown neighborhood of Philadelphia. So check it out. But Maya Bay wrote that the 1900s, what you're going to see here on out, is this time period that felt particularly hard on Black women. But Ida being Ida keeps it pushing and is happy. She's happy with her family. She's happy with, I mean, we're not always 100% happy, but she's overall happy. Like from a mental standpoint, this isn't kicking her into a depression. She walks away. And for the rest of her life, where we're going to pick up next episode for our final asterisk, hopefully, who knows, (laughs) for our final part of Ida's life, From here on out, we're going to cover Ida's grassroots activism until the end of her life. Yes. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. And if you like this show, please give us five stars. Leave us a review, Apple Podcasts. I don't know why, but it really helps us out. That's what we keep getting told. So help us out. And until next time. Thank you.